Welcome to Lung Cancer Concierge, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all our podcasts on SoundCloud and ISLC.org in the newsroom. We are your hosts, Dr. Stephen Liu and Dr. Narjus Duma. This is Dr. Stephen Liu, Director of Thoracic Oncology at Georgetown University. And this is Dr. Narjus Duma, Associate Director of the Cancer Care Equity Program at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. In this episode of Lung Cancer Concierge, we are going to focus on ALK fusion-positive no-small cell lung cancer. ALK, or anaplastic lymphoma kinase, is a gene that is rearranged in about 5% of non-squamous no-small cell lung cancer. It has a unique biology, clinical presentation, and unique treatment plans. Specifically, all positive lung cancer does not respond to immunotherapy, but responds very well to targeted therapy. Yeah, it really does. We have several potent and approved ALK inhibitors available for patients with ALK fusion-positive lung cancer. And the latest generation of ALK inhibitors have a median progression-free survival approaching or exceeding about three years. Yet we do expect resistance to develop, and our guests here today are at the forefront of ALK drug development. We are honored to be joined by Dr. Jessica Lin a physician at the Massachusetts General Hospital Cancer Center and an assistant professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Lin is one of the world's top experts in ALK-positive lung cancer and in acquired drug resistance overall. Jess, thank you for being with us today. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. We also are joined by Dr. Benjamin Solomon, a professor and consultant medical oncologist at Peter McCollin Cancer Center in Melbourne, Australia. He is the group leader of the Molecular Therapeutics and Biomarkers Laboratory at Peter McCollin, and he's also a global authority in targeting ALK, overcoming resistance. Thank you, Ben, for being with us today. Uh, Thanks, NJ. It's a real pleasure to join you on this podcast. So I really want to dive into resistance with these. I think it's a very important topic, but I think it's worth taking a moment to reflect on frontline therapy for ALK-positive lung cancer. Crizotinib, seridinib are both approved options, but when available, we now favor later generation TKIs like electinib, brigantinib, and most recently, lorlatinib. Jess, let's focus on electinib and regatinib. Are there meaningful differences between these two drugs? And between those, do you have a strong preference? Yeah, as you alluded to, Stephen, we are really fortunate now to have a number of these approved ALK-TKI options for initial treatment when patients are newly diagnosed with advanced ALK-positive lung cancer. And it's become clear, based on a number of randomized phase three trials, that next-generation TKIs are superior to the first-generation TKI crizotinib in the first-line setting. So, Stephen, you asked specifically about electinib and brigatinib. Both of these are second-generation potent ALK inhibitors. Both of these drugs have good CNS efficacy. So if we take a step back and look at the results from the two randomized phase three trials that compared either drug, electinib or brigatinib, to crizotinib, and this would be the global ALEX trial and the ALTA-1L trial, respectively, the median progression-free survival, when we look at the PFS as assessed by the Independent Review Committee, for electinib was about 25.7 months. And then that for brigatinib was 24.0 months. And there was approximately 50% reduction in the risk for disease progression or death for both of these drugs. And also I should add for encertinib, which is another second-generation ALK inhibitor, 
that was evaluated in the EXALT-3 trial, I would say that from the first-line efficacy standpoint, the drugs are quite comparable. Could you dig into the data and try to tease out subtle differences? Yes, but we would be comparing across independent trials. And I think the bottom line that both of these second-gen OCTKIs are highly efficacious in the first-line setting and superior to crizotinib remains a constant. Which do I prefer? I prefer electinib. As you know, the global ALEX trial results for electinib were presented earlier, and electinib was approved in the first-line setting earlier, quickly being adopted as standard initial therapy at that time. And so when the ALTA-1L results for brigatinib were presented, the efficacy appeared comparable. Tolerability was not significantly superior either. So in my opinion, I, I think there just wasn't enough to supplant electinib, and it remained the mainstay for most oncologists. Thank you, Jessica, for that. And as we continue to talk about ALK-directed therapy, lorlatinib was approved by the FDA as first-line therapy in March of last year, based on the CROWN trial. Ben, you presented the data ESMO 2020, and are, you are the senior author of the New England Journal of Medicine Manuscript. Can you briefly discuss the data with us? Sure, NJ. So lolatinib is a newer generation, a third generation um, alka-tyrosine kinase inhibitor. And in, as you know, it was um, FDA approved for patients who had progressed on prior second generation ALK-TKIs on the basis of a phase one, two study. And in that same study, we had a cohort of patients who were TKI naive. And the response rate in that cohort was 90%. So this provided a pretty good rationale to explore the activity of lolatinib in the first-line setting. And this was done in the CROWN study, which was a study in which 296 patients with um, a newly diagnosed ALK-rearranged lung cancer were randomized to either lolatinib or crizotinib. Now, an important point is that the control arm was crizotinib rather than um, electinib or brigatinib, which Jess just spoke about. And the rationale for this was that, or the reason for this rather, was that the study was initiated um, even prior to the first presentation of, um, of the Alex data, but does speak to how rapidly the field has, uh, has moved forward. About a quarter of patients had brain meds, and um, activity in the brain is an important factor to consider when treating ALK uh, rearranged lung cancer, and we'll talk about some of the brain data later. But the primary endpoint of the study was progression-free survival by blinded independent central review of CT scans and brain MRIs. And the study was strongly positive with a hazard ratio of 0.28 in favor of lorlatinib. The median progression-free survival with um, lorlatinib has not yet been reached. But if we look at landmark um, PFS um, at 12 months, 78% of patients treated with lorlatinib had not progressed compared with 39% of patients treated with crizotinib. The response rate was 76% for lorlatinib compared to 58% for crizotinib. And as I mentioned, activity in the brain was also looked at in a fair bit of detail in the study with the prospective MRI scans. And the intracranial response rate with lorlatinib was 82%, with a 71% complete intracranial response rate, again, speaking to 
um, the sort of highly effective um, intracranial activity with, um, uh, with uh, this compound. And importantly, lolatinib also seemed to not only delay the progression of existing brain mets, but it seemed to prevent the development of new brain metastases in patients without brain mets um, at diagnosis. And the hazard ratio for time to intracranial progression was 0.07. And if you look at the plots for the time to intracranial progression, it, it really is a horizontal line for the patient's um, that were on lorlatinib in terms of very few patients uh, progressing in the brain. Now, we did see some different toxicities with lorlatinib, toxicities like hyperlipidemia, weight gain and CNS side effects um, uh, were more frequent, which were manageable, but which are different from what's seen with other, other TKIs. So I think um, the Crown study definitely places lolatinib as another option for first-line therapy alongside um, electinib and brigatinib, which uh, Jess spoke about. And, and certainly these are consistent with the NCCN guidelines. And can I jump in about the toxicity of lolatinib? You know, the neurocognitive toxicity is something we don't see a whole lot with other drugs. And so I think there's a bit of a learning curve. I understand this responds pretty well to dose reduction. That's been my experience. Do you have any tips for those that sort of haven't prescribed lorlatinib, things to watch out for, or anything you do in your practice? Absolutely. I think that is a good point. And again, this is probably something that we're going to see more with agents that are better at getting into the CNS. And I think you use the phrase learning curve, and certainly you know, we've learned as we've um, uh, done the studies that uh, these toxicities do respond very well to dose reduction. And when I speak with, uh, when I start someone on lolatinib, I speak to not just the patient, but also their carers about the potential for toxicities such as, you know, changed mood and have a very low threshold for dropping from the starting dose of 100 milligrams to, um, to say, 75 milligrams. And one really reassuring thing we saw in the Crown study was that even patients who had a reduction in dose did not seem to have any impact on efficacy. So the progression-free um, uh, survival curves are exactly the same in patients who've had dose reductions compared to patients who haven't. Um, so importance to be to look out for these and to dose reduce when they occur. Thank you, Ben, for sharing that with us. And and I agree with you. I always have a good conversation with the family the spouse or the primary caregiver, because they can see some changes in behavior maybe earlier that the patient may notice. And I think patient education is essential. And as we're talking a little bit about the side effects along these lines, I think the hyperlipidemia is something that we also see and continue to learn about it. So Ben, what is your to go? Do you start patients right away and these agents or do you weigh and monitor? Yeah, that's a really good question. So hyperlipidemia is really common. It, it occurs in um, around 80% of, of patients. It, uh, we don't know the significance of it in terms of, um, in terms of sort of end organ effects. It doesn't seem to have the same impact that it does in, in patients um, you know, with coronary artery disease that we hear about hyperlipidemia being a, a risk factor. We, we don't see an excess of cardiovascular events. Nonetheless, um, we know that statins um, are helpful, but it's important to choose the right statins. So rosuvastatin is my go-to um, for hyperlipidemia treatment. 
I monitor closely and often end up starting at the beginning of cycle two, but I know that some people do start um, right from the beginning, but I sort of feel that one drug at a time is kind of enough to start. So that's my rationale, but, um, but I can see an argument for starting earlier. And the last question for lorlatinib for now. So Ben, is lorlatinib available in, as first-line therapy in Australia? It is not right at the moment, and approval is expected earlier, uh, sorry, later in the year. It's uh, currently approved for, for patients who've progressed on second-generation inhibitors. As we talk about the approval of Latin in the first-line therapy, you know, I would love to ask Jess, and can you talk a little bit more, you know, about these first-line agents? I, we heard earlier about, you know, these from you, but as we have more and more auctions in this space with only 5% of patients, how do you go about this? And especially in the context of adverse events, financial toxicity, and new approvals. Right. So as Ben really nicely summarized, the efficacy data for lorlatinib in the first-line setting from the Crown trial was quite impressive. And honestly, the strongest that we've seen if we compare across the randomized phase three trials for next-gen ALK inhibitors and this was in both patients with and without baseline brain metastasis. We know it's also highly CNS active, and it offers a remarkable degree of CNS protection as been reviewed. This is a really important consideration in lung cancer, particularly in ALK-positive lung cancer, where we know there is this known tropism for the central nervous system. So I think it is wonderful to have lorlatinib as a first-line option. It will be very helpful and important to have further follow-up data from the CROWN trial, including, for example, for that median PFS, and also importantly for the resistance landscape. And yet I would say already there are patients for whom I would certainly consider and reach for lorlatinib as initial therapy. For example, if we have a patient who presents with significant burden of CNS disease at initial diagnosis or with leptomeningeal disease, we know from phase one studies that lorlatinib achieves a significantly higher CSF to plasma ratio compared to some of the second-gen TKIs, and we know that the CNS efficacy and the CNS protection data are so strong for lorlatinib. And as you were referring to earlier, NJ and Stephen, there is some reticence to taking up lorlatinib as a first-line option because of that somewhat unique side effect profile. As Ben reviewed, I would say most of the adverse events are typically manageable with either supportive measures or dose interruptions or dose reductions. And I also would have very low threshold to reduce the dosing of lorlatinib, especially for patients with ALK-TKI-naive tumors. And the responses we see are, are very impressive, I think, with all of these drugs, but we do expect resistance as well. And I think an important mechanism of resistance, not just for ALK, but for lots of these targeted drugs, is the development of solvent front and other acquired mutations. Uh, Jess, for our listeners, can you explain how these mutations lead to drug resistance? Yes. So let's take a step back first. We know that mechanisms of resistance to ALK inhibitors, we can broadly categorize them into two classes, right? There's on-target resistance, which we also refer to as ALK-dependent resistance, and then there's off-target resistance, which we also refer to as ALK-independent resistance. And on-target resistance to ALK inhibitors is what you're referring to, Stephen, where it's predominantly mediated by secondary ALK kinase domain mutations. 
And there's actually a diverse array of augmentations that can confer resistance to each of these structurally distinct ALK inhibitors. So let's focus on alectinib because it is currently the most commonly used initial therapy for ALK-positive lung cancer. So for alectinib, the most common ALK resistance mutations that we identify when we are analyzing biopsies from patients are the ALK G12O2R mutation. So this is a solvent front mutation that you're referring to. And then there are also frequently mutations involving the I1171 residue. This is in the alpha C helix in the tyrosine kinase domain, and also the V1180 residue. Quickly, this becomes an alphabet soup. But collectively, these ALK mutations cause steric hindrance to the binding of the drug or decrease the binding affinity of the drug for the mutated kinase because of the structural alterations. The ALK G12O2R solvent from mutation is worth mentioning more because it is refractory to many of these available ALK inhibitors. And in fact, it is the most common ALK resistance mutation that emerges after patients are treated with second-generation ALK-TKIs, including alectinib and brigatinib. It accounts for approximately half of on-target resistance across all of the second-gen TKIs. And that is one area where, again, lorlatinib had a strength because lorlatinib had efficacy and potency against many of these ALK kinase domain mutations, including the G12O2R mutation. Of course, when we talk about resistance to lorlatinib, it's a completely even more challenging story there. Thank you for sharing that. As we continue to learn about mechanisms of resistance, Ben, do you think these mutations develop as the cancer gets exposed to the target therapy all their present early on at the time of diagnosis for patients? Yeah, great question. I think it's certainly very clear that uh, these highly potent drugs, which you know, cause uh, sensitive cells within the tumor to, you know, to disappear, exert a tremendous selection pressure among um, the remaining clones for survival. And, um, and that's how we see resistance emerging. But we've also learned that there is tremendous complexity and heterogeneity in cancers right from the time that they're diagnosed. And if we reflect that um, at the time of diagnosis, even before a cancer has seen treatment, there are many, many, many cells. There are thousands of millions of cells and multiple prior divisions and opportunities for, for genomic and non-genomic changes that um, might um, make a cell, set up a cell for resistance. It seems naive to think that these changes would only occur after treatment. So we think probably both, um, but we now have tools like single cell sequencing and molecular barcoding which um, I think will really help us understand how this develops and more importantly, how we can sort of, how we can preemptively um, uh, deal with it in the future. I think as we continue to expose patients to target therapy, we continue to learn more and our patients are living longer. We saw, you know, three years and even more in some of these patients on data that comes from Colorado, you know, talks that these patients live in way more years and, we continue to see this. So as we have seen this, we a uh, mutation that was, you know, developed earlier, we have seen these transformations in patients that have EGFR mutant, no small cell lung cancer. Jess, have we seen similar things for patients with ALK positive lung cancer? Where are some of these unique 
independent mechanisms of resistance that we see in these two group of patients? Yes, so alkene-dependent uh, resistance mechanisms are actually quite common. I would say this is one of the major challenges that we're facing in order to tackle at this time because we currently have quite limited ability to overcome these mechanisms of alkene-dependent resistance. And histologic transformation is one of them, and I can come back to that in a little bit. More broadly, if we consider resistance to the second-gen alkyl inhibitors, I would say that the alkyl-dependent mechanisms as a class account for anywhere from 40 to 50% of cases. So already that is not an insignificant proportion by any means. And then if we look at resistance to lorlatinib, that prevalence of alkyl-dependent resistance becomes even higher. And yes, we have made some advances in, in understanding what these mechanisms of alkyl-independent resistance are. For example, Dr. Ebi Dagogojak, who's at Mass General, led the effort recently identifying MET alterations, including MET amplification, as a recurring resistance mechanism. This was seen in about 15% of patients progressing on next-gen alkyl inhibitors in general. And this is clinically relevant because for these patients who have acquired med alterations on alkyl inhibitors, uh, combinatorial therapies where there's dual inhibition of alk and med could be considered. There have also been reports of other bypass mechanisms like EGFR mutations or activation, uh, gene alterations in the RAS MEP kinase pathway, resulting in that pathway activation, SHIP2 signaling, and others. And so there are now a few clinical trials that are looking at combination regimens in hopes to overcome some of these bypass mechanisms. NJ, you asked also about histologic transformation, and I'm really glad you asked because we do see this in alcopositive lung cancer as well. When our group looked at the series of biopsies that were taken from patients who were progressing on next-gen alkyl inhibitors, we noted small cell transformation in about 1.2%. This is a pretty low frequency and definitely lower than what has been reported in EGFR mutant lung cancer, but it does occur and it's important to identify these cases because that is where we may want to consider histology-appropriate therapies that are distinct from the adenocarcinoma treatments that we typically reach for. So a clear role for, for tissue biopsy when possible, I think for, we know for EGFR, for ALK, I think for all of these and we talk about resistance, we know that the mechanisms of resistance really vary by agent. And Jess, a lot of the work that came from your institution showing us that resistance to electinib is quite different from resistance to uh, earlier generation agents. Ben, do we know anything about resistance to lorlatinib, you know, compared to electinib and brigadinib? Yeah, so we're learning about this through work. Um, actually, again, a shout out to Jess and her team for the work that they've been doing in ALK resistance, extending to resistance to lorlatinib. But we are learning that uh, resistance is different with lorlatinib. And probably um, the key thing that um, Jess and others have identified is the emergence of what we call compound mutations. Um, so in addition to the, and this is um, observed in the setting when a patient has progressed on, for example, a second generation inhibitor with a mutation such as G1202R and then gets treated with lorlatinib. And what we see in tumors that become resistant, and this can be detected either in tumor tissue or in, in plasma, is the emergence of a second mutation, for example, L1198F, uh, but there are other, other mutations 
which um, occur together in, in cysts and cause, um, cause resistance to lorlapnib. This isn't the only mechanism of resistance that can emerge. Um, Jess spoke, alluded to off-target mechanisms of resistance, such as MET um, amplification. And um, interestingly, this does seem to be more common with resistance to lorlatinib than with other TKIs. And again, this is work from Jess's team. And it does seem that if you combine, for example, lorlatinib with a MET inhibitor, there may be activity in, in some patients with this as a mechanism of resistance. But there's a whole bunch of patients that we still don't understand why tumors become resistant. And I think this is uh, even more so the case um, in the first-line setting where patients are treated with first-line lorlatinib. And we're only just starting to get insights, for example, from the CROWN study where um, actually, it's kind of a good problem. Uh, relatively few patients have progressed, so we have few data in this regard. Some of the data is from on resistance is from plasma, though, and, and compound mutations, interestingly, do seem to still occur in this setting, although perhaps at a quite significantly lower frequency. But I'd love to hear Jess's thoughts on this topic as well. Jess, anything to add? No, that was really a nice overview. I think what we're seeing so far with later line use of lorlatinib is that there is this compound out mutations in about anywhere from 25 to 30% of patients who undergo biopsies. And then in the remainder of cases, it's really off-target resistance. And while we've learned about some of these, the mechanisms remain unknown in a lot of cases. So there's still a lot of work to be done. And then as Ben was alluding to, with first-line use of lorlatinib, it's still in very much unknown, right? That there we're going to have to see once patients who are treated with first-line lorlatinib experience disease progression, does that landscape of resistance that's seen differ? And you might anticipate that it will, right? Because these are patients that are not starting out with baseline outmutations. And in those cases, the threshold for acquiring that compound outmutation that's able to confer resistance to lorlatinib is going to be so much higher. And so if I could freely speculate here, I might guess that the prevalence of off-target resistance will rise even further once patients are receiving first-line lorlatinib. But of course, that's where we're going to need the data. I mean, it's so, it's so complex and we're really just starting to get into this. And one thing that's really struck me over the years is the heterogeneity, even within a genomically defined subset of lung cancer. If you look at just ALK fusion positive lung cancer, there's so much variability. You know, Jess, a couple of years ago, you led an effort, a really important work that showed the fusion variants within ALK really influence response and resistance, suggesting that some of this might be preordained. Jess, it's been a couple of years. Can you explain that data to us? Happy to. So you're referring to a multi-institutional effort that was performed in collaboration with UC Irvine with Dr. Ignatius Wu and Viola Zhu, as well as Dr. Christine Lovely and Foundation Medicine and others, where we looked at the impact of EML4-ALK variants on the development of resistance mechanisms. And specifically, we focused on the two most common ALK variants that occur in lung cancer. These are the EML4-ALK variant 1, this is where the exon 13 of EML4 is fused to exon 20 of ALK. And then EML4 ALK variant 3, where the exon 6 of EML4 is fused to ALK. 
And together, these two EML4-ALK variants are thought to comprise over 80% of ALK fusions across lung cancer. Our analysis, the main findings were that among patients with these variants 1 and 3 who had progressed on an ALK inhibitor, the ALK resistance mutations were more commonly associated with variant 3 as compared to variant 1. And in particular, that refractory uh, solvent from mutation, G12O2R, that we referred to earlier, was significantly more common with variant 3. And why might that matter? So when we then looked at the efficacy of lorlatinib, right, in patients with underlying EMF4-ALK variant 1 versus variant 3, those patients with variant 3 had significantly longer progression-free survival on lorlatinib. And the hypothesis there might be that these patients with variant 3 are more prone or develop these ALK kinase domain mutations and these tumors remain ALK-dependent and are therefore able to be treated with the uh, third-gen ALK inhibitor lorlatinib. And I should mention that this work was performed in the background and in the context of work from numerous other groups where there were suggestions of clinical outcomes on existing ALK inhibitors being affected by the underlying ALK variant, including crizotinib and alectinib and so forth. And then in the subsequent years since our publication, there have been also uh, noteworthy correlative analysis from the phase three trials as well. So as an example, in the ALTA1L trial, when they looked at PFS on first-line brigatinib and on first-line crizotinib in the respective arms, the progression-free survival on each of the drugs, both brigatinib and crizotinib, was noted to be longer with variant one as compared to variant three. But then in contrast, in the global ALEX trial, progression-free survival on first-line alectinib was not significantly different for variants 1, 2, and 3. At the end of the day, currently, the knowledge of the ALK variant does not impact which ALK inhibitor we choose to use or how we treat our patients at this time. And whether it's going to influence the outcomes on first-line lorlatinib, for example, remains unknown. So I would say this continues to be an active area of investigation, but a clinically relevant one and molecularly as well, very interesting one. Thank you, Jess, for breaking all of that to us. I have to say, as we continue to learn more about ALK fusion variants, it reminds me of my times in fellowship trying to learn all these variants about leukemia and CML. So we're getting to that level completely with our heme colleagues. And as we're learning resistant mechanisms, the question is, biopsy or no rebiopsy at the time of disease progression. So Ben, is this standard of care in Australia to rebiopsy and which other tests you do at that moment? Yeah, good question. So I'd have to say that it isn't standard of care, but I'd have to also say that the importance of rebiopsy is being increasingly recognized and it's being done more frequently. A practical barrier to this is the expense of getting the molecular analyses done, for example, which unfortunately are not reimbursed. Um, so if a, if a patient needed to, for example, have a Garden 360 assay, which actually we should just mention that uh, liquid biopsy is an important potential alternative to a tissue biopsy. Uh, the patient would have to pay around $4,000 to get that done. So that's quite prohibitive for, for many patients. But I think we're seeing that the results um, from um, rebiopsy can 
potentially be valuable in terms of guiding treatment. So I think this is something that will become more and more frequently done in the future, but at present is not standard of care. Thank you, Ben. And similar question we got to Jess. So here in the United States, the question is biopsy or no revioxy to do further molecular testing. I would say outside of a clinical trial protocol that we require that just in the everyday practice. Yeah, I would say rebiopsies are being increasingly adopted to guide uh, really individualized and personalized treatment plans, although this practice remains quite variable across the country. We know that as the number of treatment options for our patients with positive lung cancer increases and as patients receive a rising number of lines of therapy, as Stephen alluded to earlier, the underlying genomics evolves and it becomes quite complex. And at Mass General, we do try and rebiopsy whenever feasible at progression on ALK inhibitors because we feel that the knowledge of ALK resistance mutations or off-target resistance mechanisms can influence treatment selection. Tumor rebiopsies are not always feasible. And so it's great to have liquid biopsies as an alternative uh, way of capturing the tumor genomics. Let's move from chemotherapy, um, Ben. You know, while we focus on targeted therapy and really try to be very rational and specific with our treatment, does chemotherapy still play a role for positive lung cancer? Yeah, for sure. I was, I was sort of trying to think, um, you know, we certainly forget about uh, chemotherapy a lot, but I think it's important to to place all options um, on the table um, for a patient and not miss options that might have um, efficacy. And we know that uh, chemotherapy can result in responses uh, which can be durable. We knew this before we had ALK inhibitors. But in the setting where we've exhausted options with ALK inhibitors and we've got mechanisms of resistance that are not ALK-driven, there definitely remains a role for chemotherapy. And in terms of the choice of chemotherapy, we know from earlier work um, done by Ross Kamage and others that pemetrexid, um, uh, for example, has activity and perhaps greater activity than drugs such as docetaxel. Um, so I think it's important to keep, um, keep this uh, as an option um, for patients. What's, yeah, so, and I think the I guess the question, and it'd be interesting to hear what Jess thinks about this, that, you know, the key questions are how should we use the chemotherapy? Should we, should we use it alone? Should we use it in combination with the TKI or in combination with, uh, with immunotherapy? So lots of unknowns still, though. Jess, do you have thoughts on, on chemotherapy? We know that in EGFR mutant lung cancer, when we combine chemotherapy with the first-gen EGFR TKI, we see survival benefit. We've seen that in two randomized phase three trials. We'll see if the same applies to osimertinib in, in Flora 2. Is there anything similar sort of on the horizon for ALK? Right. I agree the question about what to combine with chemotherapy or to give it by itself. It's a tough one and to a different degree, depending on the patient that you have in front of you. Sometimes the patient and their disease pattern and treatment history makes the decision for us, right? So if they've had prior brain metastasis, and they're under good control with a CNS active ALK inhibitor, but there's extracranial disease progression, then there, I think many of us would agree that the decision is easier to make, where 
we start the chemotherapy for that progressing extracranial disease, but continue the CNS active TKI in order to continue to protect the brain. It is tougher when the patient does not have any history of brain metastasis and there do you continue the alkyl inhibitor with chemotherapy to allow the patient to remain brain metastasis free in hopes of that? Or do you hope that addition of a checkpoint inhibitor or perhaps bevacizumab will offer some benefit in addition to chemotherapy? This is still a, a pretty much a data-free zone. And I think we are still making decisions kind of patient by patient. In general, because we haven't seen much benefit from checkpoint inhibitor monotherapy for patients with alcohol-positive lung cancer, I would say more often we tend to err on the side of continuing that CNS-active alkyl inhibitor with the chemotherapy. But truly, this ends up being a patient-by-patient recommendation. As we talk about adding chemotherapy, we have to ask about immunotherapy. So Jess, do you think immunotherapy has a role in the treatment of patients with ALK rearrangements? Right. So as I started getting into earlier, we know at this point that anti-PD-1, PD-L1 immune checkpoint inhibitors, which are approved for general non-small cell lung cancer, really have limited efficacy in ALK positive disease, uh, similar to some of the other lung cancer subsets like EGFR mutant lung cancer. And we also know that PDL1 expression in alcohol-positive lung cancer can be upregulated because of constitutive oncogenic signaling. And so the typical correlation that we can see between clinical benefit from checkpoint inhibitors and PDL1 level really does not hold. Overall, the general preference is not to use checkpoint inhibitor monotherapy in alcohol-positive lung cancer. This is not to say there is no role for immunotherapy um, in alcohol-positive lung cancer, and I hope there will be a role so that patients with alcohol-positive lung cancer can also derive the benefit from this category of uh, treatment. But it may need to be with strategies outside of the simple PD-1, PD-L1 checkpoint inhibitors, for example, perhaps with either personalized vaccines or ALK vaccines or cellular therapies, some of these more novel immune strategies that are being explored outside of the checkpoint inhibitors. And let's turn our eye toward the future. Uh, what are the, some of the drugs in development for ALK-positive lung cancer? Yeah, so we've been really fortunate in um, ALK therapeutics that we've had a steady pipeline of, of drugs that began with crizotinib and, and actually continues. So what's sort of on the well, on the near horizon, I guess, uh, what are now being called fourth generation inhibitors. Um, so these are drugs that are active, not just against um, single mutations, um, but also against the compound mutations, which we spoke earlier about. And there are probably two compounds that are furthest along. One is called TPX131. It's from a company called Turning Point and a phase one study with this um, compound has recently begun really around the world. Um, there's a second compound um, which similarly is active against um, single and compound mutations from a company called Nuvalent. The compound is called NVL655. And um, these compounds have potential to deal with the compound mutations which cause resistance to lolatinib. 
um, but also potentially may have, um, uh, but are also actually designed um, like lorlatinib to be very good at getting into the brain. And I guess the data will tell us where these uh, compounds sit. But I, I think as Jess alluded to earlier, I think we also do have some way to go in terms of thinking about what combinations we should use to potentially prevent um, resistance um, and I guess uh, things like uh, incorporating MET inhibitors at some point in treatment, perhaps with novel schedules. Also, uh, Stephen, the advances we've seen with EGFR inhibitors tell us that um, potentially we need to think about exploring the activity of these drugs in earlier stage um, settings to really hopefully realize the potential for curing patients without positive lung cancer. So I'm quite excited to hear the data with um, electinib in the first line, sorry, in, in resected patients, which um, hopefully we'll be getting fairly soon from a study called ALENA. Jess, is there any other compounds that down the line that, you know, very inside about in this space? I think that was a really nice summary of the upcoming fourth generation ALK inhibitors. And then the other area we'll be watching out for the combination strategy clinical trials. Thank you. And before we close this episode, we really want to hear a little bit more about the both of you. So Jess, you have most done most of your training here in the Harvard system. Can you tell us a little bit what uh, moved you towards focusing on lung cancer? Mm. I was a biochem major at Harvard College. That's when I first arrived in Boston. This was by way of England, Korea, Oregon, and New Jersey. <laughs> and in that context, I happened to meet a mentor who was an oncologist. And that led to my initial, the birth of my interest in cancer biology and cancer care. And then this interest in general oncology continued throughout med school and residency. And then during oncology fellowship, I found that I was really excited by that pairing of all the advances that were being made in lung cancer, diagnostics and treatments alike, and yet all the work that still needed to be done. I found that pairing really appealing. I found both the science and the research fascinating. And I met mentors and colleagues along the way in thoracic oncology who really shaped my vision and my training and career development. And I would say that all came together to have me land in uh, lung cancer research and lung cancer care. Ben, uh, same question to you. You know, you've been focused on lung cancer, I think from the start, right? Your, your PhD and your postdoc work was in EGFR mutant lung cancer. Was there something that drew you specifically to thoracic oncology? Yeah, really uh, interesting question and, and interesting to sort of reflect back on that. And I think when I started my oncology training, which um, was probably, it's, it sounds like a long time ago, the turn of the century, Stephen. So 1999, <laughs> uh, uh, 2000 was my first year as an oncology trainee. This was when you know we were getting really excited about Gleevec for CML, about um Trastuzumab for HER2-driven cancers, so really the sort of emergence of targeted therapies. And I think, um, you know, for us in life and in our careers, chance or serendipity plays such a big role. And when I was doing my training as a sort of a general trainee, we had a phase one trial uh, with a drug called ZD1839, which um, 
some of uh, your listeners will remember as the sort of the compound number name, which became uh, Iressa. And we started seeing these um, you know, amazing responses in patients with, uh, with lung cancer in a subset of patients. And that really you know, piqued my interest. And then I had an opportunity to do a, a PhD in this area. And then I was fortunate to do a postdoc in Colorado with, um, you know, my mentor was, um, was, was Paul Bunn, who's, you know, as, as you all know, a giant within um, ISLC and, and the broader lung cancer community. So, you know, that, um, you know, really sort of um, consolidated things and, and things clicked. And, and again, with serendipity, when I came back to Australia, the very first um, phase one trial I did was with uh, a drug which uh, we thought was going to be a pretty good MET inhibitor and turned out not to be that great a MET inhibitor, but that drug was crizotinib. Um, so I think uh, serendipity was a big factor. I think um, having um, you know, fantastic mentors uh, along the way, just as Jess spoke to, was another, another big factor. And it really has been such a, and continues to be such an exciting time to be involved in thoracic oncology. Well, I think part of the reason it's so exciting really is the two of you. You know, this, I don't think I can overstate that really the two of you are, are world leaders in this field. And, you know, we're, we could talk forever with the both of you, but we are out of time. So I want to be respectful there. Jess, thank you so much for, for taking the time out of your busy schedule to be with us today. Thank you. It was such a pleasure to join. And Ben, thank you for your insights. And I'm, we know that is already the next day in Australia. So we appreciate your time. Thanks. Uh, thanks very much, NJ and Stephen. A real pleasure to join you guys. And thanks to everyone for listening to another episode of Lung Cancer Considered, the official ISLC podcast. We hope that you turn regularly and you provide your feedback. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Lung Cancer Considered. You can find all our podcasts on our website, islc.org, in our newsroom, or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank, like, write comments, and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues. 